Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art for WGXC Wavefarm. Today's show features conversations with two artists from the Deep Wireless Radio and Transmission Art Festival, Montreal sound artist Anne F. Jacques and Edmonton journalist and radio artist Don Hill. In the second half, Don Hill explains his interest in transporting the notion of counterpuntal radio over to interactive media with his new installation, Story Trees, which you can visit online at storytrees.ca. The audio you heard at the top uh, was by Anif Jacques, and it's a realization of a tech score she created during the first lockdown called Pieces for Domestic Waste and Objects. And you might recognize that the sound for that piece was the sound of pencils. Her sound work is uh, interested in objects of all kinds, in fact, and the everyday, the natural, and the discarded. And... Uh, you can create a piece of your own from uh, one of her tech scores uh, for this coming uh, Arts Birthday celebration on January 17th. And it's a, a piece for objects found in the street that you can find in your local neighborhood. But first, to provide some background, here is NF Shock in conversation. I've been working with sound for, what, since the early 2000s? Or I guess since I was... Yeah, for, for a long time, I guess. Um, I've always been very interested in experimental music. And I guess even being interested in, in basically the promise of experimental music, meaning what, what could that be? You know, even before I heard a lot of it, what, what could be an experience in, in music or sound? Um, and so I've been trying to do my own experience, experiences with sound. And um, that has mostly dealt with uh, dealing with objects, the sound of object, your amplification, and uh, finding different ways to sometimes listen almost as if you were inside of objects. Um, instead of just in the acoustic air environment. So for many years, manipulating objects and then finding ways to not ma manipulate them so much, but finding ways to kind of let them do their things. So kind of create situations with like, let's say little motors and, and contraptions where 
objects can kind of come in contact with each other, both in a kinetic and in a sonic way, and to be present mostly as a observer. So these experiences with sound, as you call it, uh, are not just the auditory result, but the visual uh, activity uh, that takes place in order for the sound to happen. Yes, although for me it's very okay to not to miss the visual component. I guess what I'm saying by that is that the sounds I produce, let's say in a in a in a recording or in a released recording, there's always a, a very material and actually visual and kinetic uh, device that that has been producing these sounds. Uh, so for me, it, it's always that my work with sometimes people ask me how do you compose i don't sit down at the desk and compose i mostly build something and it, it ends up making producing something but then i'm in, quite interested in how we actually hear differently that same sound if we see it like in an installation or in a performance where you kind of see it from afar but you have the feeling there's something moving producing sound or if you listen to it in a let's say a radio context or a recording context where you don't see that source of the sound yet you feel like there's something moving so that's very interesting to me like both the visual aspect and sometimes the removal of the visual aspect so in terms of creation do you uh if you can see the sound or not see the sound do you do you um work with it differently well, you end up, yeah, because sometimes when you when you see the sound, when you see the source of sounds, you end up imagining all kinds of things that may sonically not be there, uh, meaning there's some type of movement that makes you feel like there's a sound that may almost not be present. And conversely also, your imagination of what was the source of something that you just hear and don't see is quite different. So sometimes it, it gives a, it can give you a kind of freedom to, <laughs> to only focus on, on the sound or more on the visual aspect and kind of a, a little bit play with that distance. I work a lot with motors and um, basically trying to have different objects come in contact with each other um in in interesting ways so for example uh let's pick one yeah it, one of my favorite contraptions that i've made is um a very slowly rotating wasp nest and um beside it there is a long dry leaf of a plant uh the dry leaf is amplified and the tip of the leaf comes in contact with all the little alveoles of the nest. And so it makes that kind of little percussive bubbling sound that comes both from, let's say, reading the, the surface of the wasp nest, but also kind of revealing the elasticity and the structure of the leaf itself. So the sound is kind of a, is really a result of the encounter between 
these objects in this situation. Um, and then, well, also a lot of works with rocks and papers. And uh, these days I'm working a lot with objects that are very wiggly, <laughs> very elastic. So even if what puts them in movement is, is a continuous rotary motion, the object always kind of does different thing or gets deformed in different ways. So creating not too cyclical sounds out of that. That, that sort of things. So a lot of these things sound to me like found objects, uh, things that you f discover perhaps in the environment and then bring them to your studio. And your, your studio is not, uh, you know, obviously it's not pencil and paper and a desk. It's, it's um, might, we might see drills, we might see soldering irons, or is that, is that the, the picture of how your process works? Yeah, my studio is utter chaos and boxes and drawers of objects more or less sorted uh, by categories. But yeah, absolutely, I I always collect kind of objects and and they're found objects because I mean the opposite of of a found object is an object that you go out and buy, for example, or acquire. But to do that, it means that you need to know in advance what you're looking for, which is not the way I work. You know, I often will find something on the street or in a flea market and be like, oh, this is an interesting, strange thing, but I have no idea what, what I'll do with it. But I take it to my studio and eventually it kind of finds its place uh, in a situation with, with other Things. What what attracts you often to the different objects that you acquire? Is it is it do you check them for how they sound, or is it a, a, sometimes a visual uh, interest, or how, how does it is there a common uh, thread to what what attracts you to things that you see in here? That is kind of mysterious, even to me. Why sometimes I pick something up uh, and not other things? It's not so much this like most of the time it's not the sound potential because i actually like a lot to work with uh objects that are very poor resonators or things that we would not associate with sound at all um so it's it's more one thing that i can see that i'm pretty much always interested in is objects that are kind of worn out uh and have been used in a certain way, in a certain direction, which is why I find a lot of things in the street, like weird old pieces of metal, let's say, that have fallen off cars. And I'm not sure what they were used for, but you can clearly say that it's an object that was fulfilling a function and, and has gotten very worn out doing that. And so for me to take that object at that stage of its life and then finding another way to activate it in another direction, there's something there that I find very stimulating. So yeah, the, the fact that you see that there's all, like kind of all, already traces of activity around that object that interests me. Is there a, uh, any kind of political interest of recycling or anything of that nature? Or is it strictly just a fascination for something that you, that you just happen upon? 
Well, it, it, it gets all kind of built together. I guess I'm also quite obsessed with the notion that these objects are, they're not going anywhere, meaning we've produced them, we've put them in the world, and even if uh, they have occupied their function and now we don't need them anymore, the object is not going. It's going to stay, you know, around on this planet for quite many years. So there's something about that, right? These things are present. And so it, it's interesting to me to be, okay, let's, let's keep continuing. In a way, it's, it's more than um, recycling because this recycling notion can be very much like, let's feel good about the fact that we're using things. And for me, it's like, no, let's, in a way, let's admit to ourselves that we are making all these things and that we don't know how to handle them once, once they're over the function that we had planned for them, they're still present. And so let's keep them around us to remember, you know, like they need to not disappear from you. So yes, I guess, I guess there is a, a political or ecological uh, view to that, but that is clearly not proposing a solution, but more like, let's just keep contemplating that, that situation that we've created as a society. I wanted to fast forward a bit to the last year with the pandemic, and you contributed to a project that originated out of Beijing, and uh, we're an artist there invited people to, if I understand correctly, make tech scores about everyday objects, perhaps, or or maybe that was something you brought into it, but um, and uh, to record uh, performances and to share those through a, a Facebook group. Uh, and then those pieces became uh, part of a international compilation of, on Bandcamp. Um, maybe if you can uh, elaborate a bit more about that process and how what you made was it perhaps a diversion from from what you've done before that project was uh, organized by yan jun who's a as you said some artist based in beijing and also somebody who always organized uh concerts and performance series and so uh well given the impossibility of of doing that and you know people in china had quite a few months of lockdown experience uh, ahead of us when we got into that. So he thought about that, that, that project for putting a lot of, of uh, artists together, but also at the same time trying to take a step back from having to do everything from like a, you know, a live streaming or not having it being, even if it relies on the internet to, to organize it and to disseminate it, but to not just be too kind of stuck to these platforms. So he asked a bunch of, uh, of people around the world to make scores, text scores, so that the other people, including the participants, you know, could do it. And in fact, at first, it was not even supposed to be that you record it and, 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 and uh, upload it, but more basically as a kind of series of activities, you know, that we could have as an antidote to boredom, basically. Um, 
and that's how I got into that. I I've never written a score before. This is not really so much well wasn't really part of my process. In fact, I was kind of a bit reluctant with the whole score thing until very recently. But uh, well, first I anyway I played scores from some of my friends in in, in the past, uh, including Ryoko Akama, and I kind of understood more how it's actually quite generative to how following some instructions can really kind of take yourself out of what you normally do in a way that is really interesting. So anyway, I, I thought I would uh, give it a go. So I wrote a piece um, where it is for objects. I was trying to propose something because I, my work is very idiosyncratic and with motors and contact microphones. It's not really something that I can just tell people to do that because it, it's something I've developed with like, you know, gear and equipment that I have. But I thought, what could I propose that people, anybody could do uh, wherever they're from and what they have around them. So I wrote a piece for domestic objects and domestic waste and objects, uh, kind of indicating a series of manipulations that produce sounds. And then, and then, in fact, a few people did the piece and recorded it. And uh, that was a really interesting process. I also played many of the pieces, uh, other people's score, and uh, recorded them and uploaded them. And how did you find that process interpreting other people's instructions? Really interesting. I mean, that was the best. That, that whole thing was the best, by far the best part of that year or pandemic uh, with with two friends of mine. We have a what we now call a little artist collective uh, with Elizabeth Miller and Fred Peterson. And we the whole spring and summer, we would uh, meet once a week outside in, in the public space, but not so much park as park were very much almost too much used in Montreal because that's all people could do. So we found little vacant lots and we would play um, mostly just for each other. But so for many weeks, we actually played these scores um, from that project in G66. And, and that, was, that was some of the best uh, things we've made together. Like it kind of just focused us and gave us a, a way also to feel, you know, a little bit connected to the outside world. So, yeah, that was great. <laughs> Were those performances recorded at all or, and published in any form? Yeah, the, those, yeah they are, a, a couple of them are on the MiG-66 Bandcamp. Since that time, NASA has invited you to make a tech score for Art's birthday coming up, and, and uh, which uh, uh, you've, uh, you've extended this idea uh, towards that, maybe you can tell tell me more about that. I again was trying to propose a listening experience where people could get that feeling of listening almost from inside an object, even if they don't have access to tools like contact mics, let's say. So the score involves recording to sound manipulation by having an object, in this case, a 
coffee cup, either the cup itself and or the lid against the microphones as a way to have that kind of material resonance um, as a kind of inter interface between the, the, the microphone and, and the object manipulation. So I'm really quite uh, looking forward to listen to how people will, you know, interpret that or what what are going to be the, the results of that. Yeah, I think it's a little like the, um, if, for those that don't know what a contact microphone is, you can kind of imagine the Dixie cup experiment. I don't know if you're familiar with that, where you take the two little paper cups and you attach a string to them and you talk to each other across yes. the, the Dixie cups and it's the sound is being transmitted not through the air but through the material of the of uh, the items that you're using uh, because sound after all does transmit through objects as it does through air um, air is just one other medium you've been working with that notion a lot and what what is it that you discover about an object when the sounds transmitted through it rather than in the air, what what is when you attach a contact mic and you hear the sound through the object? What is, um, what is often compelling for you about that? I think that what I find interesting around that is, um, you know, when we listen, we listen through our. Okay, this may hard to for me to say in English, but correct me if I'm uh, not very precise. We hear through the cochlea but also through the whole bone structure of our head, right? So some sounds just directly go to the ear, but a lot of them also, like let's say if you have your head resting against something else, uh, you also have, we have a physical way of listening that is literally through the bone of our skull. And we, in fact, we do that all the time. That's how listening works. But in some situations, one, side of that is amplified more than the other. And I think I'm quite interested in, in this aspect that that very kind of physical, visceral in a way, way of listening uh, that is true through the bones. And I find that the whole contact mic experiment or putting a microphone directly on an object gets quite close to that. In a way, it's very close to well, what you described the Dixie cup or any time really that you put an object directly on your ear, you're going to hear the sound extremely differently because in fact, it's pressing against the bones of your skull. And so that whole feeling of like being in the object and having the object kind of get through, through you, through the structure of your body, I find that very, very uh, compelling, so that it's it's a bit these situation that I'm trying to uh, to reproduce. Yeah, so I guess in a way, when you encounter an object, you could stick it to your ear and tap it and hear hear that transmission happen directly without any technology involved. Absolutely, yeah. And it's fascinating how what you hear is, is a little bit different. It's not just louder. It's actually a, a different version of that, the sound that you're going to experience. Do you find that once you've recorded it, that you need to um, treat it or manipulate it in any way? Or are you often um, 
happy with what comes off as, from the raw recording. I do very little processing or manipulation. Like with my recordings, I may only do, you know, with a little bit of EQ or things like that, but not, uh, I don't add any effects, not because, I mean, effects can be very interesting, but in my case, I don't know, I, I try and find objects that are, object situations that are complex and strange enough uh and then leave it at that you know like basically putting the effect in 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 the actual making of the sound and that's where like just between the object but also the amplification like what 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 is amplifying the sound and how it's happening to have the the interesting sound effects come from that more than from like post production so thinking of it as part of the live sound performance aspect, I guess, because I guess your practice is more geared to live performance than it is to uh, fixed media. Oh yeah, and I'm I'm more than keen to go back to live performances. <laughs> and but you also make work for installations for uh, galleries, I guess, and and. Uh, Maybe if you can uh, just uh, mention as far as um, how that is uh, different than uh, in terms of how you approach the objects and the and the sounds. I mean, I guess the the main difference is that in installation, I can do I can do anything I want in in the sense of that it can be big, it can take a lot of time to set up, um, it can make a very tiny little sound, you know, I don't have the, the limitations of, of the performance, because in performance, you know, you often everything needs to fit into your backpack and you need to be able to set it up in 20 minutes, and, you know, things like that. Uh, but it's similar kind of contraptions I use in, in both contexts. The mass, the, the major difference, I guess, is the way this, the the sound is amplified like for performances often well let's say if I play in a you know a typical venue um I will have one output one sound source that gets radiated into the space and so we hear the the, the functioning and then the modification of the contraption through that sound source well in installation I try to like every little contraption as its own sound and the overall sound comes from the multiplication in the space of all these little devices making their own sound. So it sounds more like an environment, more like a linear uh, continuous thing, but more like something built up from all these uh, discrete little creatures in a way. You're listening to Making Waves on WGXC. That was uh, an interview with Anna Jacques, and uh, next we're going to listen to an interview with Don Hill. And he's uh, exploring the notion of counterpuntal radio, but in the context of his interactive web installation called Story Trees.
I think what I was interested initially anyway, is this idea that, you know, a, a radio broadcasting veteran such as yourself, how did, how did someone like that end up making an interactive uh, audio installation? Let's go back uh, to when I was a teenager in Sudbury, hungry for listening to radio at night and having a white transistor, six transistors, I might add, RCA Victor box, which I used to hide under my pillow. And uh, I stumbled upon something which was recorded by Glenn Gould and reproduced on a program called Ideas. This has been about 1967, as I recall. Um, I heard it in mono. It blew me away. And then I started to want to look for this. So I went to the public library later and found a copy of it. And I was obsessed with this recording. And for those of us who are interested in not just acousmatic, but all kinds of narrative audio, this was pretty interesting stuff. And then I was hungry for more of it. And there wasn't any. Skip ahead to 1974-75. There's um, a similar time, but different in the sense that a lot of young people were unemployed in Northern Ontario, where I was living, and the Opportunities for Youth program was created, largely to keep us off the streets and out of trouble, as it turns out, uh, listening or looking over cabinet notes later. Uh, the governments were very nervous about young people at the time uh, taking to the streets and demanding more. <laughs> Bit of an irony there. Anyways, with an Opportunities for Youth program grant, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife today, uh, Anne Prevo at the time, and I, went around um, northeastern and later northwestern Ontario the year after, recording our elders, which leads me to the second part of this um, answering your question. Um, I grew up, as I mentioned, in Sudbury, which is a mining town and has been a mining town since the late 19th century. And... The stories that were told there, uh, I was just curious as a kid about, um, nobody ever talked about the Indians, or for that matter, anything else, because most of Europe, the scatterlings and um, diaspora is the fancy word, uh, men, mostly men, could get work in the mines there, especially after the Second World War. Uh, no questions were asked about, uh, you know, whose side you were fighting on. It was very peculiar for us kids on the surface our fathers and mothers had been adversaries uh, in Ukraine, you know, communists and, and people who weren't communists. Uh, and they would, in some cases, <laughs> continue that battle uh, in a number of ways. But underground, everybody was united in the noise and, and the clatter and the roar of mining. But I didn't get my questions answered about, you know, well, what, what is this place and, and where are the stories and, and what is... You know, what's this thing over here? Nobody really knew, but more important, nobody really asked a question. So typical of youth at that time, and I would say today's youth as well, well, we said, uh, you know, let's go find out. So we literally hitchhiked the first year around, which was fashionable at the time. You could hitchhike very easily and without much, you know, idea that you're going to get hurt or anything like that, because everybody was hitchhiking for the first summer uh, of 1974, and we talked to people, some in your territory right now, in South River, I mean in Algonquin Park, you know, North Bay, um, Nipsing area, uh, down in Muskoka at the time, Lake Rosso, 
And we got as far north the first year as Wawa uh, around Lake Superior. The second year, uh, the summer of 1975, we went, made our way all the way to the Manitoba border and to other locations like Ear Falls and Red Lake up in uh, northwestern Ontario. Anyway, all those recordings um, sat not on a shelf. I made a what I would say my first radio documentary called Men of the North Are We. I made it into a series of two long-playing record albums. And if you listen to the first part of Men of the North Are We, the first record, you'll hear a kind of homage to Glenn Gould uh, and the idea of North in terms of that first blush of the two minutes, which confounds most people, uh, and what we now call counterpunctal radio. I was deeply inspired by that. I'm also a musician, and the reason why I got into broadcasting was because, well, you know, musicians, pretty, um, it, it wasn't very uh, stable then, let alone how it is stable now. Um, so I, I sort of liked music, and I figured the closest thing I could do was to get into broadcasting, which I did. And I've had a good run at it and still continue to have a good run at it, to tell you the truth. So then I got really interested in, uh, because I was, uh, am a musician, in uh, Steve Reich. Mm-hmm. And I've, my first blush was with Philip Glass as well. I didn't know about Paul Lansky. This is back in 1975? or, or yeah, 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 yeah. I was starting to get really turned on by these things. The, the upshot was that I started listening to Reich and realized that he was doing maybe an homage to Glenn Gould. Uh, and, but something very peculiar happened to me in terms of drumming, repetition. I started hearing rhythms within rhythms that actually weren't there. So if you're a guitar player, I'm talking specifically to guitar players that are interested in the music, for instance, of Blind Lemon Jefferson, you will know when I say this, that Blind Lemon would play licks that you heard that he actually didn't play. He had these audio illusions. And that's when I started hearing all these other things in the voices. The voices were combining in such a way uh, that something emerged that wasn't accounted for by the actual conversations. You're you're talking then uh, also about uh, Steve Reich's uh, It's Gonna Rain and, and Come Out. But I think part of that's due to the repetition of the of the phrases, uh, the looping. Yeah, not just the but not just the repetition, uh, Darren. This is where it gets kind of really interesting for us as specialists, right? It has to do with tone and uh, volume, 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 um, and that actually creates some other conditions. Whether it's the ambience in the room, all the um, acousmatic stuff, or um, ambisonic type approaches to to listening just you know moving the audio furniture around creates other impressions Uh, anyway the voices themselves are very much reminiscent of uh, a bach counterpoint point a two-part invention so in other words the left hand is playing a very distinct melody and the right hand is a very distinct melody. In other words, you wouldn't imagine that the two would be actually work together, but they do. And in skilled hands, such as Glenn Gould, something arises out of that counterpoint that is not accounted for by the notes. And that's what he was reaching for. So I think we call that culture. I worked at CBC in Toronto. I was a national radio host in, uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and at that time... Uh, the memories of Glenn Gould 
and people who worked with him at the CBC, these are older guys at that time, and they're mostly men, of course, at that time. Uh, and I had an opportunity to sit down with him and um, find out, you know, wh- how, why did you do this? And, and, you know, without getting all of the details. And what I found was that my instincts uh, is that I was the outcome of what they were hoping for, that, that there was this other information that was being transmitted. And um, I was picking up on it as a kid, way, way out in the bush, so to speak, even though Toronto's like, what, 400 kilometers from Sudbury? But at that time, you might as well have been in space. So that's, you know, it's like that's the way it was at that time. Today, I would say, for the, especially you, Darren, and I, who have been at this for a long time, and, and uh, I was just reminding myself of other colleagues that I've worked with at the Banff Centre and the wonderful uh, music and also sound program that has been there over the years, um, is the next step is for people who are working with, um, like we are today, we're doing a, a traditional double-ender, we're working with computers. This is a fantastic time to be alive. And especially if you're interested in creating um, audio, not furniture, but uh, oral landscapes that people can fall into. Uh, people will say that the pandemic is a problem, but for people, there are more people listening than ever before. Yes, I, I, would, say. I would agree. And then that presents a remarkable opportunity, like Glenn Gould had, to push the envelope on creating these audio spaces. And that's what Story Trees is all about, is relearning how we listen. And it tells you more about how you listen, I suppose, than you might have expected. I guess the difference with Story Trees and and what you created as that counterpointal mix back in the 70s, um, so you're using, in Story Trees, you're using the same source material, these interviews that you recorded back then, but the mix, as far as I understand, is controlled by the listener through a webcam. And uh, so how did you arrive at that um, choice as opposed to um, continuing with uh, creating counterpunnel radio in the studio, you know, the way it was done in the in back then? I'm not very satisfied with social media. I don't think anybody is these days because it uses algorithms to basically um, game you into thinking through um, confirmation bias. Um, I won't get into the fancy language too much here. Uh, that, that somehow you are, uh, it feeds you, it's a slow drip cortisol machine, uh, or for that matter, um, just a slow drip machine. But the point is, it is interactive, but for all the wrong reasons. It's mining data from you and your choices, and then feeding you back what it wants to feed you, not necessarily what you need, and a reflection of what your desi- actual desires or what you're looking for are. And that's a little complicated, but what I'm getting at, most of broadcasting, uh, as I understand it, has been always one way, one to many. But when I was on the radio on a regular basis, and especially doing phone-in radio, but before that, uh, I would, in the mind, uh, I would sort of put myself in, like an actor, in the mind of the character of the listener. And then I would do this, perhaps. I would say something provocative, like, why is it that all species have birds? And uh, I go in my brain, I can hear the listener going, saying, what? <laughs> and and then I have those pauses built in. So that was my bogus interactivity way back when. 
Then when phone and radio came in, uh, especially when I had an experimental show with CBC, I had half the country for a program called The Night Watch. And the idea of The Night Watch at the time was that what would happen if we smartened up instead of dumbed down phone in radio? Well, what we discovered was smart people phone in. <laughs> what it means is there, it told me and t- it teaches me that people were hungry for interaction. Okay, so let's take this a step further. Uh, a colleague of mine um, in all, uh, that I've worked with before, and I won't get into too much detail here, was working with interactivity in a sense. And again, uh, credit where credit's due. Sarah Diamond at the Banff Center created the conditions to attract people who were interested in interactivity, whether it was virtual reality uh, and and responsive architecture. But the, the challenge with these sensors right now is we're sensing things, but what about the content that's being returned? Let me repeat that. It senses everything. Social media, with its algorithms, returns back something they want to push to you. But what would happen in terms of sensors if you push back content that was more reflective of who or what you are? And initially, I started off with story trees with that premise, is that here are these people talking. There's going to be some counterpoint. There's lots of counterpoint in this. There's tonality that we haven't heard in a generation. These voices kind of disappeared. What would happen? I mean, I'm talking just the, just the way people talk. That's what really floored me. Is that we just, people just don't talk like that anymore. Uh, I didn't edit like as much as I edit through the initial Men of the North or We. I left the pauses. Some of them were quite long. And then I noticed when the pauses were there, the other voices had an opportunity that I could hear them. Does this awful sound like an awful lot like social media and the noise being generated right now? We have no space, no space for these other voices to arise, okay? And we do it at the pace of the listener, not what I want to tell you. This is what you have to hear. And the more you linger in the space, like me as the kid searching way at night, looking for something interesting to listen to, you know, being patient, waiting, 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 it's kind of like fishing, you know, the whole, it's not the fish that you're concerned about. It's the whole process of being engaged and listening. So that went from story trees. It went from, that was the initial premise where I was using sensors, Arduino boards all over the place, right? I said, no, this is too complicated. Way too complicated. I'm in Edmonton right now. At the University of Alberta, uh, there is a very strong artificial intelligence department and a community that's built up around that. Uh, and Kai Matherson, uh, who's at the university, is also a coder, and he's in my neighborhood, and we got to talking about this. And he says, well, I know how to do. We can do this. And so that's what we did. We, he, he did a paper a few years ago, a scientific paper, uh, using the webcam as a primary sensor through facial recognition and another uh, extrapolations. And I said, yes, let's use that because it's simple. We have to simplify. So to turn this back to the beginning of what I was getting at, AM radio is probably the simplest means of transmitting to that kid way back when with a little six transistor box with just two knobs, volume and tuning, (laughs) right? And that was my inspiration. said, simplify, simplify, simplify. And StoryTrees is very sophisticated in the sense that 
the content is weighted. What I mean by that, W-E-I-G-H-T-E-D, it's psychologically weighted. And depending upon your mood, and what I was talking about, whatever, it will slowly change. And if you slowly engage the content, it will reward you through that latency by hearing those other voices arising. Well, how is it that um, it senses your mood? What, what feedback do I give it? It's looking at my face, presumably. I guess. Yes, and it's also, it's also uh, monitoring how... direct. Am I selecting things through facial gestures? I mean, pretending to you be could, happy, yes, for yes, instance. Yes, you could do that. But the other thing, it's also measuring... It's also measuring... Uh, and now, um, again, please don't take this wrong, okay? Uh, I realize we're living in very sensitive times. Uh, white people uh, have... Uh, you know, you know, when you get red-faced when, because you're embarrassed or something like that? That's the extreme of blood flow. All human beings, no matter of what color you are on the outside, the webcam can sense through the software your sense, your disposition, whether you're flushed in the face or whatever. Uh, it does detect smiles and frowns. That's true. It also detects body movement. So in other words, if there's a piece in there, you probably notice the pixelation um, if we were on a, uh, matter of fact, I think I'll put up that movie on the website. It's a short movie, um, showing that our blind spots, uh, the pixelation, um, is there on purpose. It also, if you move across the screen from left to right, like I'm doing right now, the pixelation will move along with you. But what it's also doing is if, for those of you, I'm actually tipping my hat here, but why not? Let's be didactic here, Don, tell them what to do, <laughs> which is what I don't want to do. <laughs> Um, you also start to see other information visually that seems to have disappeared, but it appears. And that show, acquaints us, uh, again, this is part of the art part, is our blind spots and how we fill them in with what we want to hear or see, even though it's not there. And this is about going slow, and, and, and which is crazy for me because I'm a hyper guy, right? <laughs> Broadcasting. But it's about slowing down to see and hear what you've missed. Which is a good, a good challenge for installations because uh, sometimes with installations that require time, they're compromised by the expectation um, of most people that visit galleries where, where installations are typically shown um, that you can just kind of walk around and uh, size it up in a few seconds and if you're interested, you'll stay. If you're not, you'll move on to the next, you know, yeah. move on with the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, and I took, I took um, that into account. And, yeah. and uh, so that's an interesting uh, challenge. Uh, there, there's, there's kind of, um, I think in, in, you know, in, in terms of um, for people to create music, normally uh, that's a problem because you're used to it unfolding over time. But so in this sense, you have to create, the attractive beginning and the middle and the end all at once in one moment, it seems. Um, and then, so it's like you have the uh, initial impression that's uh, intriguing, but then you have something there to follow through uh, to sustain interest over time, you know, in order to bring people into the temporal dimension. So I was just interested in how ways that you address that problem. You're right on the money. So how how can we retain attention? That's what you're really saying, right? Have I got that right? Uh, 
but also allowing for that initial impression to work positively in your yes favorite. yeah and so in other words uh, how do you retain attention so there's design there i know it's new adventures in sound art but there's potent visual and in some cases manipulative bits of panels that people will be looking at and drawing their attention to there's intentional design there and uh it took a lot longer to do than uh, i had initially thought it would take uh, and i made the designs in consort with um, again my psychology friends these are not in the sense of manipulative in the sense of um, the usual stuff sex greed and fear uh, these are something that are attractive they're attractors and then once you're attracted there and linger you begin to become aware of other attractions. So let me just repeat that so it makes sense. I recognize it took me a while to get my head around that. You want an attractor that like a, a sign going down the road says, you see a sign up the road and as you approach it and you're paying attention, it says slow to 50 or whatever. Your attention was held by that. As you slow down, you begin to become aware of other interesting things in the village that you slow down and you stop and you get an ice cream or that's what I'm trying to get at. It's to slow the attention down. And then once the attractor has done its job, people become aware of the other attractions. Also for uh, listeners who are not in, uh, in our small village of a thousand people, um, uh, <laughs> that uh, they can experience this artwork as well online at, storytrees.ca. Oh, yes. So yeah. how did you account yeah. for that change of context that uh, somebody at home uh, on their computer experiencing the piece as opposed to being in a physical space that they traveled to? The experience is the same but different. People go into galleries, they say, oh, got that, move on. All right, so let me go back a step. When you're at the home, you actually have a longer time to linger at, at your, um, or in the gallery space, except you might want them, to, <laughs> I'm going sideways for a minute here, or as Philip K. Dick said, orthogonal. All right. <laughs> uh, one time I was sitting in the National Gallery of Canada and I was completely absorbed by a painting. Uh, and I sat there for maybe a half an hour and the security guys were getting nervous. <laughs> they, were going, they were looking at me, finally, at about the 45-minute mark, somebody comes over. You really like that painting, do you? Wanted to see if I was nuts, right? <laughs> In other words, not used to people sort of sitting there and lingering. Then uh, in the summer of 2019, I was at the Tate, one of the Tate uh, galleries in, in Britain. Now, one of the things is these medieval paintings. You know, these big, huge paintings that you, when you go... Uh, I'm, you see, like, they're, they're, they're astonishing. Like, they're bigger than billboards. I, I'm sure you know what I mean by that. Okay, I had never seen them um, in the flesh. I had seen them only as reproductions online. One of the big startling things for me over the years was looking at, you know, that Dali painting of time where the, the clock is dripping over and stuff like that. You know that painting I'm talking about, right? How big do you think it is? I don't know. I don't know the size of it. Most people are familiar with an LP record sleeve, long playing record sleeve. It's smaller than that. Oh, it is? Yeah. Yeah. So the home experience for what you're saying is still using the same idea. 
is if you project it on a screen, if you have a 55 inch television monitor, great, fantastic. If you have a projector and you want to project it on, you know, uh, that's even better, I suppose. But it works even better on a smaller screen because we don't, it has to do with the potency of the images themselves. But the key thing is back to the medieval painting thing, just to add to that is, and I, I should mention this, this is a trick that I learned and I, because it happened to me. The issue is many, many years ago, back in Sudbury, a, uh, 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 an artist friend of mine, Dennis Labbe, he did the front cover uh, for Men of the North or We, uh, which was the name of the record album. Uh, he's a Métis artist. Uh, for our American listeners, this is a person of mixed heritage, uh, Native American, you would say, and um, uh, European ancestry. Anyway, we were, uh, as, me as a young person, he took me to an art gallery uh, which was in short supply in Sudbury at the time. And in the art gallery uh, were non-representational paintings, a.k.a. abstract paintings. And I was doing the usual teenage, ah, what's this stuff? This any, Anybody could do this. You know, look, this looks like crayons. And, and he stopped me. He says, um, why are you so angry? He basically said. And I said, well, look at this. Anybody can do this and stuff like that. He says, no, you're not, you're not, it's like, uh, it's, you don't, it's not that you hate this painting, it's you don't understand it. Stop me dead in my tracks. Then he did something remarkable. He said, this is the way into this picture. Start looking at this spot and you will begin to see, and I said, oh my God, thank you so much. He pointed the way into the picture. Well, it turns out the medieval painter guys, you know, the big, huge canvases, will have a starting, an entry point. And you go to that entry point and you follow where the artist takes you in the static image. And there, there's plays, uh, foreground, background, you know, depending where your focus is. So back to Glenn Gould. Glenn Gould did the same thing. Volume and juxtaposition, left hand, right hand, produces something that's not accounted for by the notes alone. So I think what Story Trees is an attempt at is to slow people down to find the way into the audio image and let your mind wander with where it takes you on these remarkable voices and conversations and a tone that we haven't heard in a generation. That was Don Hill talking about some of the inspirations and influences behind his creation of Story Trees an interactive installation that is available online at www.storytrees.ca. This has been Making Waves. We're heard on WGXC Wave Farm the second Saturday of every month at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening.